Hello and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist podcast. My name is Erin McCreary and I'm an infectious diseases clinical pharmacist at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Before we get started with our guest today, I wanted to acknowledge the amazing SIDP podcast team. This group does so much work behind the scenes and we appreciate them really more than we can say, but I need to acknowledge Travis Jones, who has done the sound editing on all of our episodes to date and runs our social media accounts. Julie Justo and Zara Escobar are really my partners in crime, leading the podcast committee and coordinating SIDP communications. And then Gerilyn Sin for peer reviewing content all the way from Hawaii and the rest of our organization for their passion and their drive. It's truly a phenomenal team and we couldn't do this without them. And then now moving into today's episode, I am joined by Mike Dudley, who is the president and CEO of Cupex Biopharma. But Mike is also an SIDP member and a former frontline antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist. So Mike has a lot of really rich information to share with us and a lot of cool experiences. Mike, thank you for joining us. Uh, good to be with you, Aaron. Thanks, Mike. And so can you elaborate a little more for our audience on you know, where you started your career and then where you are now, how you ended up at QPEX? Sure. Um, so Aaron, my, my background, I've got my PharmD from UCSF back uh, in the 80s. Um, so you'll be able to say all those things like, okay, boomer, uh, when I bring up uh, certain controversial topics. Um, <laughs> I started out in I'll try to hold off on controversy until we're like three, <laughs> three minutes into the episode, you know? Sounds good. Sounds good. So um, started out uh, in, in really an academic position and sat on the three-legged stool like many of your listeners where I was doing practice um, research and teaching at the University of Rhode Island and was involved in what was called, not called stewardship at that time, but at uh, Roger Williams Medical Center in Providence uh, where uh, we were doing antibiotic management, but essentially trying to accomplish the objectives of what we now know as antimicrobial stewardship as well. And I moved to uh, industry in the uh, in the mid 1990s to because um, uh, I was much more interested in, in research at that time and and began the journey of uh, new drug discovery uh, across a lot of small companies, which um, ultimately have uh, led to Cupex uh, uh, Biopharma, which was spun out of the medicines company uh, in 2018 um, following their divestment. So that is really fascinating. So you were a steward before being a steward was even a thing. You're like an OG steward. Um, and then you went into drug discovery and our audience may or may not know, but you were instrumental in the development, discovery, and eventually bringing to market of Vabrobactam, obviously the beta-lactobase inhibitor connected to miropenem for miropenem, Vabrobactam or Vabramir. You're like the coolest pharmacist ever, actually, <laughs> when you when well, you think about it. <laughs> Well, we, we had a lot of, you know, we had a lot of, um, uh, what I will say, um, false starts, you know, before we settled on, on um, Vapor Bactam and, and discovered it. And, and uh, certainly, we can talk about how drugs are discovered uh, and, and the trials and tribulations that we had um, before uh, ultimately landing at Rempex Pharmaceuticals and, and uh, discovering Vapor Bactam. Um, and a lot of those, a lot of those lessons that we learned in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000 timeframe, I think, are still relevant today as we start to think about how to how do we discover new drugs and and address uh, the antimicrobial drug resistance problem. Yeah, I think let's start there because I think that's a good way to frame this discussion. And so, currently, we hear. In the news right now, you actually just had a really nice article, I think, um, online featured talking about how 
we had years and years and this amazing call to arms from the government, from around the world, from the World Health Organization, the CDC, et cetera, of push incentives, developing antibiotics, the need for antibiotics for our patients that have infections that we simply cannot treat. And, and we responded. And mirapenem faber-bactam was one of those antibiotics. That, you know, there's been almost 20 antibiotics in the past 20 years um, in this response. And now, though, all we hear is how we have these antibiotics and they're not sustainable. And so I think we need to tell both sides of that story. But I don't think our audience knows. I know I certainly don't know a lot about that discovery part. And I think that's amazing. Like, how do you find these compounds? How do you get them to a point where we can safely give them to our patients and treat our patients. And um, I mean, Vaporbactam is such an awesome beta-lactamase inhibitor and you're giving it at six grams a day, which like makes my dose optimized heart happy. So can you, I know I can't even imagine where to start, but can you kind of start to walk us through the discovery pathway and decisions that go into discovery programs? Um, how you identified that target? I mean, where did you even start with that compound? Well, and we generally think of drug discovery as falling into three types of, of approaches. And the first approach is, off, is this idea that we can have a new drug that might hit a new target in bacteria, a gene product, a protein, or function that we've never had before. Or, or secondly, we might think of drug discovery looking for a new chemical class that might be hitting a known target. So, for example, another class of drug that hits a penicillin binding protein. That, but we already know that that target's important for bacteria to function uh, normally uh, in, in, uh, in, in uh, their replication. But we may have a reason for trying to develop a new class that still hits that known target. Or, or thirdly, is we may be working with a known chemical class of drugs, like a beta-lactam, but improve the pharmacological and microbiological properties. Because we've learned that, that rarely is the first drug in a class uh, <clears throat> ever the best. Well, well, certainly the first two, the new targets and chemical classes are nice, and, and, but I, I have to say it's very, very hard. And antibiotic discovery in the 1990s with the availability of, um, if you're back then, genomics had really hit uh, the uh, scientific field. And that was focused on doing both of these activities. That it was to find new targets in bacteria, but also to try to find new classes of drugs. Well, um, this boomer here uh, and others' experiences um, were often very spectacular failures, to be honest with you, uh, in both gram-positive and gram-negative bacteria. Uh, there were very intensive drug discovery programs at GSK, AstraZeneca, and a program that I led at a small company called Microside, which was a collaboration with Pfizer in the 1990s. And what all of us did was we looked at these newly discovered targets that were revealed by using genomics, and we largely came up with absolutely nothing. Uh, I think there may be one um, narrow-spectrum GSK fatty acid biosynthesis inhibitor that's still rattling around um, in development with a small company somewhere, but we really, we just failed. The one very vivid lesson that we learned from all that was that just because you have a new chemical class of a compound that, that, say, hits a new target or has a new mechanism of action, you haven't solved for the, the problems that are the root of multi-drug resistance. That's bacterial efflux pumps and cell permeability. So in other words, you may have in a biochemical assay or with permeabilized strains that looks like you might have something, but then um, when you try to actually set, test them in clinical isolates, you get nothing. And, 
it just was a reminder that multi-drug resistance and efflux are powerful mechanisms that restrict the entry of all kinds of these diverse molecules. Um, so including your nifty new chemical class that you might find uh, against that new mechanism of action or target, but that can prevent you from successfully finding a development candidate with suitable potency or um, you can uh, encounter multi-drug resistance in the clinic. And, and people forget that multi-drug resistance that, that results in resistance to quinolones and beta-lactams and, and other drugs is the root of that is permeability and efflux. So just because you have a new target doesn't mean that you've overcome that. And I'm not saying that we don't try to do that. I just say that we have to recognize history to avoid repeating it in spades and don't over rely on that pro approach. Yeah, absolutely. We actually just had this conversation. Um, we're developing treatment algorithms for where the new drugs fall in in place for different multidrug resistant gram negative infections at Pitt. We had the conversation around all the tetracyclines for Acinetobacter, so Minnow, Tyga, Arava, even doxycycline. And and how do we decide the difference? Does one dilution in vitro potency matter? And and it for that class of of drugs for that organism, it really does all come down to efflux, and it's something that we still, despite adjusting structures, still haven't really fully overcome, right? And yeah. is there a big difference in the molecules? We're not really quite sure. And then the pharmacodynamic targets are obviously very different, and they're studied in intra-abdominal infections. So how do we translate that to, you know, Acinetobacter bacteremia? So it's really, really interesting. A good point you bring up. Yes, yeah, those are they, they certainly are. Um, and so that brings us back to kind of why we. Um, have uh, uh, have thought about, and another variant of, of what I just talked about is is trying to take either existing or say proven drugs and try to um, make them work better by either restoring their potency um, uh, in some way or specifically by targeting resistance mechanisms. Um, we've uh, we for many years tried with efflux pump inhibitors to try to get a candidate we could take in them demand. Uh, we've done that more recently with beta-lactamase inhibitors. And, and the targeting the resistance mechanism um, is, uh, is often easier to access. So it's not that you have to be accessing a target, say, across the inner membrane of gram-negative bacteria, but for the uh, mechanisms of resistance that we just talked about, many of these are oftentimes in the periplasmic space to gram-negative bacteria like the beta-lactamases or the transmembrane domains of efflux pumps that are spanning those inner and outer membranes, and those are accessible. And so, therefore, your chemical diversity has a, a little bit better chance of, of being able to get to those. And so that's why we have um, focused on kind of this hybrid approach of developing new drug uh, or chemical classes but taking them against known validated targets like we've done with beta-lactamases and using a novel chemical class that in our case, using the element boron in the molecules to interact with the active sites of uh, key beta-lactamases. And it was really based upon structure-based uh, guidance and how we would then dock various different molecules into the active site of the uh, beta-lactamase that we discovered um, molecules um, like Vaporbactam that would be predicted to have very, very good activities. And so these are done in silico or in using a computer, uh, docking it might, like you might uh, be docking molecules in some kind of a, um, uh, a, an Atari game, and then uh, actually finding the molecules that might be predicted to have the best activity and then having medicinal chemists actually make those. And Vaporbactam actually was discovered fairly quickly 
quickly uh, with those uh, those types of um, exercises, uh, and we were able to then move um, that uh, that um, molecule quickly into preclinical development and ultimately clinical development. I was going to say, I think, well, first of all, you get incredible bonus points for the Atari reference. <laughs> I'm like, have flashbacks to sitting in my grandpa's basement and, and, play, and playing Atari and ignoring my mom. Um, and now it's tied to my favorite thing, antibiotics. But um, yeah, vapor bacteria moved very quickly. And so I think from discovery to patient availability, eight years, is, is that correct? Now, that's correct, uh, Aaron. Uh, it moved from first synthesis to FDA approval in under eight years. And one of the reasons why we were able to move as quickly as we were is, uh, is because we've had successes and failures on, on actually how to leverage PKPD and discovery. Um, you know, we thought that you know, we've been thinking over the years with doing these programs since we rely so much on PKPD and clinical use and clinical decision making and differentiation of drugs and also in drug development. Why not use it in discovery? So, for example, let me give you a, let me just kind of walk you through a, an example here. So, so let's say that you have a new class of drug or, or a drug with a new mechanism of action. And what happens in, in drug discovery, you do a lot of microbiology. It's easy to do things in vitro. We're looking um, at this point to see if drugs are active in whole cell screens. And one of the things that, that uh, from going to microbe for many years and walking past all these posters is that you oftentimes find that there's lots of chemicals that are going to be active in whole cell screens because, frank, quite frankly, they're like detergents. <laughs> they dissolve mammalian uh, cell membranes. They dissolve bacterial cell membranes. And so that's why you often see the latest lay press article about, hey, garlic has antimicrobial uh, <laughs> activities or yeah or, or, or a sea sponge you know <laughs> has, has anything uh anything. a good friend a good friend told me once that polymixins he wasn't sure if they were antibiotics or soaps and that is yep. why i use that when i teach all my residents and students now because it's so true it all it helps you think kind of globally of how these things really work and yeah it's a good point yeah well i'll, I'll you know i'll, I'll uh, oftentimes that you know coming out of these labs where they sort of talk about something like that that, you know, sea sponges and things like that having antimicrobial activities and everybody says, hey, that's it. We'll just hit the beach and problem solved. That's really just not that, that helpful um, because they aren't drug-like. They, they, they don't have pharmacokinetic properties. Yeah. Um, just to be clear, we're not promoting sea sponges as antibiotics on, on this podcast. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But, but nevertheless, you know, you try to understand in those early stages, you try to understand this, the mode of action of a molecule on a specific target. You, we, spend a lot of time trying to select for resistance um, with molecules. What's the role of the multi-drug resistance mechanisms like efflux and permeability, uh, like we talked about before, that they're such powerful modulators of activities, or even mutations um, on the targets. And, and that's why it's easy to select for high-level resistance to avibactam in vitro and in vivo, but not so much for, say, boronates and like vaporbactam or other um, new agents as well. And so we might ask then at that point, how do we, what concentrations of this new drug, or how do we prevent it using PKPD principles to really maximize and assure that these compounds are going to be durable? Yeah, I think 
we're seeing this come out, especially in the gram negative space with what our targets even are. And I think that's some, what you're explaining to us is what you take into account when you're developing these molecules. So we used to say for carbapenems, you need 40% time over MIC for treating a gram negative infection. We know now that that's probably 100% time over MIC and that just being just over the MIC may or may not be good enough. Likely you need to be at least four to five times the MIC and then you know, we start to have these conversations of safety and efficacy and how much drug can you safely get in your patient. I definitely think I'm in the school of we can give a lot more beta-lactam to our patients than we currently do. Um, and what your point about efflux and porin mutations in combination with beta-lactamases and thinking about developing these molecules to overcome resistance, I think is a very important one that people may or may not be familiar with and that we look at an MIC for a resistant isolate, right? And we're like, you know, the breakpoint's one. So if it's four, it's resistant. But we're looking at one static number in time, a phenotypic representation of a very, very complex genetic background of an organism. And there might be a E. coli isolate that has a meropenem MIC of eight. And we might freak out and think that's a carbapenemase and I'm going to give them Ceftazidine, maybe Bactam, or Imipenemorella Bactam, or Mirapenem Vapor Bactam, or any of our amazing novel beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitors. What we need to know, though, is not only that MIC, but also the genetic background, because what we're seeing is that ESBLs alone, or hyperproduction, or slight mutants of ESBLs, can actually confer carbapenem resistance when married with efflux and porin mutations. And when you think about that, if you have efflux and porin mutations, as you stated, you're getting less drug into the cell. The lower amount of drug that you're putting into the cell then is hydrolyzed more efficiently by these mutated ESBLs or just by the simple overproduction or, or large volume of enzyme there. And so it's not a carbapenemase that's giving you a meropenem MIC of eight. It's ESBL, AMC, porin, efflux, the whole thing. So if you give a beta-lactamase inhibitor, like you're talking about developing, you block, you take out the ESBLs and EMCs, which is not traditionally what we thought we need these novel beta-lactamase inhibitors for, but then you take those out, the little, even with porn mutations, you're getting less drug into the cell, but then it's still active, right? Yeah. And so kind of considering all of that, right? So, and that, why beta-lactamase inhibitors are such a good molecule to develop. Absolutely. And, and I think <clears throat> what you're really getting at here is, is, is really moving more towards what we oftentimes refer to as kind of the genetic basis um, behind the MIC. And I think a, a much longer conversation that many of us are having now is, is really moving away from the MIC, moving away from breakpoints, and having uh, an ensemble of information that includes um, not only microorganism factors that allow us to measure the uh, genetic backgrounds or the genes that are there for beta-lactamase or changes in porn mutations and efflux and so forth, but a, uh, but a number of other pieces of information that really help us to characterize the, the strain. And ultimately what you want to know is the probability of response to a given dose of an antibiotic. And, and I, they're, they're planning uh, stages right now for um, some meetings in the fall but one of those meetings in the ASM ECMID meeting is really going to start to deal with how do we uh, enrich the information that we have about bacteria as well as the patient to make um, predictions about how they respond to maximally dosed antibiotics. And I think that's a, a much longer future conversation about how do we get away from stiff breakpoints that we've been so used to using over the last 20 years or so. 
Yeah, that's so interesting. I love this conversation. But uh, I guess circling back to your PK, you're talking about we got a little sidetracked. I'm sorry. I got <laughs> breakpoints get me breakpoints get me fired up. Um, <laughs> but let's talk about PKPD development. Um, so how do you figure out how much you can safely give a patient? When like when you're thinking about this, how do you have these discussions of what what's the dose going to be? How frequently? How how high can we go? Yes. Yes. Well, it's, I think it's for us then is, is we start to address those questions in drug discovery with, with PKPD. And so let me kind of maybe illustrate how we might think about that and, and get to that, you know, get to the answer to those questions is that let's say that we do find something interesting. We've, we've convinced ourselves that, that the mutability of this target and that we've minimized the effects of efflux and porn mutations. So in the drug discovery process, what do you do next? And so um, usually, <clears throat> oftentimes the compounds that you have um, in the, at this stage have really crummy pharmacokinetics. They're highly protein bound. They've, they've got clearances that are three times uh, liver blood flow. But what traditionally do people do? They actually go run into the um, into the animal laboratory and try to show um, efficacy in an animal model. But what invariably happens is the drugs fail in the animal testing stage because the PK is lousy. You can't get free drug levels. The drug fails. You'll what you often see this, I think, in in some of the the publications and presentations that uh, you'll see these bizarre results from that show that one compound that they've made works great in the animal, another compound with the same MIC. Uh, or even lower isn't working and they scratch their heads and kick the ground saying, I don't understand what's going on here. Uh, and, and they just haven't thought about the pharmacokinetics. And what we found, you know, over the years and, and continue to see in programs that the failed experiments of why it doesn't work in the animal, just doing the animal model experiment doesn't give you any insight as to why the drug has failed. Um, what we did we've done is differently is we actually have this sort of a heretical approach, at least in some people's minds, that we'll actually do pharmacokinetics in the animal species before you do an efficacy model and then use that to prioritize what you're going to take in to test in an animal model. And um, in addition, we've adapted use of, um, I'm sure you're familiar with hollow fiber in vitro models. I was involved with these in the 1980s at Brown and we've adapted those now in drug discovery so we can actually study new molecules that still have crummy pharmacokinetic profiles in Mickey the mouse, we can actually take those though uh, um, and, and kind of give that molecule a PK profile in a hollow fiber and then ask the question, what does the pharmacokinetics have to be in order for us to be able to dose this drug every eight hours or every 12 hours or even once a day uh, in order to be effective? And so we're not sort of fighting or stuck with this bad pharmacology at the early stages of drug discovery. And we can even identify for this new target what the PKPD index associated with bacterial killing and prevention of resistance needs to be, such as with a new beta-lactamase inhibitor. And then our chemistry group can then design a molecule that's going to have that pharmacokinetic property to be able to, uh, to get that desired level of, of, uh, of efficacy. Wow, that's awesome. That's really interesting. So, so I mean, the point here is that that you know we could do the PKPD while we're still optimizing the chemical class and the medicinal chemist. It really, 
by having pharmacokinetic information, they get real guidance on what they need to, to change. Uh, that's more efficient than sort of flailing away in the, in the uh, animal lab with animal experiments where you get failures and you don't understand why the drug isn't work. In this case, you, you actually already know the pharmacokinetics and the potency director directly. So you, you actually use the animal experiments to confirm what you already know from the PKPD. And um, this may, you know, this sounds logical. I'm sure this sounds logical to, to you and a lot of uh, your listeners here, but you'd be shocked at how many companies are still chasing this old paradigm and, and banging away in the animal model um, and ignoring the, uh, uh, the PKPD. So the other reason why you know we were able to move so quickly with our beta-lactamase inhibitor program, uh, for example, with with uh, Weber-Bactam from discovery to uh, FDA approval in eight years, was our first partnership um, that we had with Barda. This partnership provided us with the financial and technical input that helped us advance that program. Um, we were the fifth program that was awarded a contract uh, back in 2014. We were behind companies like Acagin and Plazomycin and Tetraphases at Ravacycline and GSK and Basilea. But we were actually the first program to deliver um, a, 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 a FDA product approval uh, in that BART program. That's fascinating. And just for our audience who may not be aware, BARDA is the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, which is part of um, the Department of Health and Human Services, and actually under this division for preparedness and response within the Health and Human Services Office. And so what that basically means is that BARDA is kind of our government force that helps our community respond to any kind of threat, and that would be pandemic, viruses, emerging infectious diseases, and things like that. So BARDA is providing a ton of support um, to try to encourage the development of new products and be able to prepare us for, again, these things that we can't treat or illnesses that we don't have a cure for. And so, Mike, I think they're supporting Cupex. You guys have a couple other interesting compounds in the works that are probably in these early phases or moving through the development model, as you just described, like you did with Weber-Bactam. Can you tell us a little bit more about from a drug developer's perspective, why you're working on the molecules you're working on, what you have in the pipeline, and how you think they're going to help patients. So we continue to explore the structure activity relationships of this new class, particularly with respect to expanding its spectrum of inhibition. Um, we felt that looking at the future and talking to a lot of our advisors, we concluded that it didn't make sense from a long-term stewardship uh, uh, drug discovery or durability point of view to continue to be using what I'll call unprotected beta-lactam antibiotics, uh, either existing or new ones, um, given the importance of beta-lactamases driving um, this resistance to this class. So in other words, um, if we have the ability to be able to take beta-lactamases out of the picture of resistance, we think that that's going to go a long way towards preserving the uh, beta-lactam class. Yeah, that's a really interesting thought and a good point. We are starting to have this discussion at my center and I know other centers. If you have an isolate with a mirapenem MIC of one, let's say it's E. coli, and you know that it has a KPC, but the Miro MIC is one, I think that's one of the most important questions we need to answer for patient care today in front of us is, is six grams a day of mirapenem alone sufficient for that patient? Because the MIC is one. So from a target attainment standpoint, you should be able to hit that with, you know, two Q8 over three hours, or should you be giving them a novel agent because you know it has a KPC and they'll do better if you protect the beta-lactam as you're saying. Um, 
I think that is incredibly interesting and a question we need to answer for our patients. Yes, you know, um, you know, David Livermore and 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 David Patterson for for many years, and this goes back to the ESBL, the sort of the dawn of the discovery of how important those those were. There was this constant debate uh, that we had on whether it was important to know the enzyme or was it important to know the MIC and. The Davids were, were certainly on the side of knowing the mechanism of resistance was certainly important. And um, back in the 1980s and early 90s, we would, you know, if it had an ESPL, it was automatically termed as resistant. Um, and, and we moved to more using breakpoints to call those organisms susceptible based upon MIC. But I think that what we're learning now is indeed knowing something about the mechanism of resistance because of these interplays in here may, may cause us to, to perhaps reassess uh, that approach, particularly when you take into account um, that sometimes the, uh, the breakpoints and sometimes the dosage regimens aren't employed the way that they should be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this has to be probably one of the most polarizing topics in our field right now, um, phenotype, genotype, or both. Um, I'll yep. shamelessly plug my colleague, Ryan Shields. He's going to be presenting some data at ECMID where we're looking at these isolates with similar MICs, but whether or not they possess a carbapenemase and simulated beta-lactame exposures. And it's really interesting. And it's, like I said, the most important thing is that we take care of our patients and knowing when to use these drugs. So I think we need to be using these drugs more often. I think your point of unprotected beta-lactams is, I've never heard it phrased that way before, but you're right. Uh, why not give them a beta-lactamase inhibitor if you can? It's not just carbapenemases too. Like I discussed earlier, ESBLs and EMCs can really creep up on you when they're coupled with porins and efflux and other mechanisms of resistance. So I think, you know, we're going to continue to learn and develop and grow in these things. But let's get back to your, your beta-lactamase inhibitor though, because it's really, really neat. So tell us a little bit more about it. Why, you're, I mean, you're saying why you're developing it, but a little bit more about what this inhibitor is going to do. Yes, and so it was exactly those kinds of, of thinking that we thought about that it was going to be important to see about expanding the spectrum uh, of a beta-lactamase inhibitor to be able to, to start to think about all these different in, enzymes and, and, and all these different types of backgrounds. And so, you know, following kind of Weber back then, we, we did achieve some early success in expanding the spectrum of these boronate um, uh, molecules to other um, serine uh, enzymes like the OXA enzyme, as well as getting activity in Pseudomonas. Uh, but it was really when we made some significant breakthroughs in our chemistry that we were able to actually expand into the metallo uh, enzymes or class B enzymes like NDM, um, that of course, as you know, occurs can occur in Enterobacteriaceae, and 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 being able to have a, a molecule inhibit a serine versus a zinc metallo complex, I think was uh, was a, a pretty amazing feat that we we uh, we learned. But at least in our program, the, a real breakthrough then came in when we got to a series of molecules that not only have these broad enzyme inhibitory activities. But then we also were able to now get potent activity and some of the non-fermenters like acetobacter and carbapenem resistant acetobacter. So again, you know, just having activity against the uh, OXA enzyme, which is important in acetobacter, but you had to get the molecule inside acetobacter as well. And unlike other compounds um, that are currently on the market or, or, or in development, clinical development right now, the molecule that we presented on last year at Microbe and, and, and also at the ID Week, this uh, QPX7728 is active against 
the serine beta-lactamase enzymes like the carbapenemase uh, KPC as well as ESBLs like CPXM that you uh, just mentioned, class C enzymes, but also the class D enzymes like oxa and acetobacter, but then also the class B enzymes like MFIM and uh, NVM, of course. And so we consider yeah, QPX7728 to be this ultra broad spectrum uh, beta-lactamase uh, because not only does it have the broad enzymatic coverage because it has some other properties that kind of give us this ultra broad spectrum uh, piece and I'll kind of walk you through that. Um, ultra broad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We can't even define broad, man. <laughs> well, strap yourself in. See if you see if this works. Ultra broad. <laughs> yeah, ultra broad. But that's the other most polarizing topic in ID. What is broad spectrum and what is narrow yeah. spectrum? Well, you should thank me that we haven't called it a generation, uh, you know, like a fourth generation. A fourth like generation beta lactamase. <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we avoided well, that. <laughs> I will give you that. I will give you this one, though. This is, in fact, ultra broad, and, and we don't really have time to digress into the uniqueness <laughs> of metallo beta lactamases. But as you mentioned, and actually, we, we talked about this a little bit because they presented some of these data at ID Week. So we have an ID Week podcast episode that gets into metallos a bit, but they're different in that uh, they're not as structurally dissimilar from human enzymes. So you lose your specificity, so you can have more toxicity. Metallos are not like one size fits all, like some of the class A beta lactamases are, as you've discussed. And then we haven't had a beta lactamase inhibitor yet that's effective at inhibiting OXA class D beta lactamases found in acinetobacter, like you just said. AV bactam obviously some fits somewhat into, into OXA 48-like, but that's just mm -hmm. one small subset of class D enzymes, and class D enzymes are so unique. And they're also, you know, the cephalosporin probably has, well, not probably, definitely has some role there too. So it's pretty complex. But so I'll give you ultra broad. It's it's amazing. It's amazing science. Yes, and just to your point too, as you, as you mentioned about it, you know, beta lactamases, there are, there are human enzymes that sort of act uh, like that, that look a lot like those. And so it gets back to this whole idea about optimization is that we have to also, not only are we testing these molecules against um, bacterial um, enzymes, but we also have to make sure that we've, um, as, our, as my medicinal chemist colleagues call it, kind of drive a wedge uh, in between the activity that we get it against uh, bacterial enzymes and not affect the, uh, the mammalian uh, enzymes that oftentimes have share some of those characteristics. So, you know, getting the enzymatic, uh, uh, you know, uh, sensitivity and specificity is important. But the other piece of this, which gets back to addressing some of the MDR mechanisms, was also getting these drugs um, so that designing the drugs so that it could get in uh, to these other bacteria. So, Ultra broad from our standpoint was also being able to have this work, uh, this molecule work, not only in Enterobacteriaceae, but also in Acinetobacter and Pseudomonas, because there's very, those are, of course, as you know, very, very different um, bacteria in terms of how they're constructed and how the membranes uh, and efflux components as well. The, the upshot of this was, getting back to this idea, was is that un, unlike other inhibitors that work well with only one beta-lactam antibiotic, our approach, getting back to this idea of, of protecting um, beta-lactam molecules was in selecting this molecule was that, um, that it restores the activity of multiple beta-lactam antibiotics. It works with carpenems, penicillins, and cephalosporins as well. And, and that really presents some interesting approaches um, as we're thinking about it now for development and clinical use. Um, including a, a molecule like this that could be uh, essentially a drug that's, a, if you will, a, stand, a standalone inhibitor 
that could be individualized with different beta-lactam drugs that are already on the market, for example. And um, we think of it as a, it's a bit analogous to the approach with, with boosters like in HIV therapy, like Cobicostat, uh, which is indicated to be co-administered with antiretroviral agents because it boosts the activity of those agents in those cases from a, uh, uh, from a pharmacokinetics uh, point of view. Here, we're thinking about it much more from a pharmacodynamic point of view, but having something that could be available so that, that the clinician could individualize that based upon all the components that you were talking about before in terms of the types of enzymes, the other um, um, molecular mechanisms that might be uh, in place, so that you're not sort of locked into always having to use an inhibitor with one drug, but you could individualize it depending on what you learn about the strain uh, to, to be able to do that. And there's been some examples recently with trying to do that um, in the literature, although it's a bit clunky when you have to try to reach across and use uh, another beta-lactamase inhibitor combination and combine it with another drug in order to get that activity. Yeah, I think... I think the idea is amazing. I think there's obviously going to be some logistical things we would need to work out. Uh, we already, susceptibility testing obviously comes to mind first and foremost as something that would be difficult to, that we'd need to figure out, but worth it. I think this concept of precision medicine and infectious diseases is important in the way we need to go. And so from the development standpoint, what we've discussed here, I mean, it's great. The science is amazing. The development pipeline is good. Uh, you guys, you've talked about a lot of cool things to consider from your perspective and, and ideas in drug development. But then the question then becomes, and the elephant in the room when we haven't addressed yet, is now we need to talk about the market side, right? So you're developing these compounds. You're bringing them to market. We need them to treat our patients. Um, but once they get to market, these drugs are failing. And I don't think that is... A secret to anyone. They're not, they're not selling because antibiotics aren't this bulk product that we should use in mass numbers of patients. They are very niche products for very select patient populations that should only be used when necessary. And so the model's broken, right? You're spending all this money to bring an antibiotic to market, and then you can't make money on it in return because you, it's not how it should be used. Um, and it, we're not not using these drugs because we don't want to. I am a stewardship pharmacist and I will tell you the best thing I can do some days is put patients on these drugs empirically. And yes, I said empirically, if they deserve it and if that's what they need. At my center, I have patients with history of KPC producing organisms. I have patients with history of other MDROs that I need to know who those patients are so that when they get readmitted, when they're in the emergency department, I can start them on Ceftoltezo or Ceftazavi or Mirovabor on their first dose because that's what they that's what the best drug for that patient is. These decisions should obviously be based on our local epidemiology. As I said, we need pharmacists and physicians, stewardship teams need to evaluate your local epi. You need to know what bugs your patients have and who, who earns them, who deserves broader therapy up front. So it's not that we're not using them because we don't want to, but it, at the end of the day, they're still pretty rare infections, thank goodness, right? We don't want um, tons of patients to have these horrible drug-resistant infections. And so there's really a niche role for these antibiotics. Aaron, your comment about empiric therapy is spot on. Um, in, in high-risk settings, I think we really need to reframe how we're using these newer, highly active antibiotics. The, the current view still seems to be rooted on reserving the drugs until the last resort, until we've tried others, but that can be too late. And you're asked about value. So here's kind of how I'm think, we think about it is 
you know, active antibiotics are most valuable when they're used in the setting where they're most needed. We all know that, but that's often an early empiric therapy in a, in a high risk patient. And what do I mean by high risk? I mean, high risk meaning that they have clinical indicators. That means that they may be a risk for a drug resistant bug, but I think it also applies if you're at high risk for a really bad outcome. If you're in septic shock, um, the uh, in fact I just saw um, this morning that uh, the um, you know uh, the uh, SCCM uh, journal just released the the BARDA analysis of the impact of sepsis and septic shock um, in the uh, Medicare population in the United States, and it's um, it's truly spectacular. So patients who are in sepsis or septic shock and having risk for bad bad outcomes, particularly if the, if the drug is delayed. That's, that's really where we have to think about it. And, you know, you ask about value and, and maybe way to kind of visualize um, the, uh, the value of these antibiotics is they probably change over the time course of their use. So if you were to visualize um, the time course uh, of, of, say, the antibiotic value on an XY axis, where time is the X axis and value is on the Y axis, I think we would all agree that that there sort of is very quickly the peak of the value versus time occurs very early. It kind of would look like almost like an oral absorption curve, right? Where that's really where the value is, and then it declines um, over time. And if you think about that, then think about the whole value of what the antibiotic course is. Then giving a drug too late in that scenario is probably one of the biggest misuses of these new antibiotics um, that I can think of. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the data shows that. So there's reports definitely with ceftolazane, tazobactam, and um, ceftazidine, maybe bactam for sure. We're just starting to see real world data with mirapenem, babrobactam, and some of the other new agents. But the earlier you give them, the better patient. That's It's pretty straightforward early. And even, even outside of drug-resistant infections, even just, you know, I mean, well, ESBL is, I think, drug-resistant and an underappreciated problem. Um, but even, you know, ESBL infections or other infections, the sooner patients have active therapy, the better they do. That's right. And, you know, you bring up Vebamir. And so just full disclosure, I'm not involved with Vebamir anymore. So I don't have a, I don't have a dog uh, in the current marketplace, uh, you know, in that hunt. But um, our team did conduct that first of its kind randomized phase three trial of meropenem vebrobactam monotherapy in patients with CRE infection, otherwise known as Tango 2. And, and that trial taught me a lot of things about first, the difficulties of doing those types of trials, but secondly, um, about timing being important. The trial, of course, showed that meropenem vibrobactam was superior to best available therapy, which, as you recall, was this, um, where uh, uh, the best available therapies were these borderline active antibiotics like colistin, oftentimes in two or three drug combinations. I think it was, but what, I, thir I think patients got 13, 14 patients got 13 different combinations or something crazy like that. Yeah, it, it was, yeah, it, it's it's amazing the cocktails that, that but that, that, that sort of uh, talks the to, you best. know, what, what you do. <laughs> yeah, what you have to do in order to do this. So, so there was the, you know, sort of the root cause of that, but probably the most impressive finding of this, to, to, at least to me, was is that there were there were five deaths in the 32 patients in the meropenem vibrobactam group. Of those five deaths, four of those deaths occurred in patients who had failed previous antibiotics, of which there were there were nine total in the trial. So nine of those patients, and similar nine patients with prior antibiotic failure. Five of these patients were also clinical failures on meropenem vibrobactam. 
what that means is that failing on suboptimal antibiotics can advance a patient to the point where even the most active drugs couldn't rescue them. So again, the, the, the majority of the failures and certainly majority of the deaths that occurred in the meropenem bactam group were associated with, with patients that had been receiving for a prolonged period of time drugs that um, weren't very active. And so that even when you get to the point of actually choosing those drugs, you can't often can't rescue a patient um, in those uh, settings. It, you know, these drugs aren't miracle drugs. Um, they have to be used before the patient is being pushed to the edge, um, before they progress to a status where even the most active drugs, um, you know, can't save them. And you know, I just don't feel that it's rational anymore for us to be expect failures with the old drugs to serve as the trigger to use these old, these newer and more valuable agents. I don't, I don't think that's good for patient care. And as a steward, I think the approach, that approach actually misuses these antibiotics if you wait too long. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's hard though. I mean, it's not easy. You have to know your local epidemiology, which people may or may not have the resources to really dig into. You have to know your patient population um, and you have to have good stewardship in place because good stewardship is escalating therapy and good stewardship is stopping antibiotics when they're not necessary. So these yeah. drugs work in patients who need them, but it's hard. It's by no means easy to start them. It's by no means easy to stop them. And so you need systems and places on both ends. And, but really this, like the cost concept, like in some situations, the only reason you're waiting is because it's like, is it worth it to spend a thousand dollars a day? When really you could argue actually that these drugs are worth way more than a thousand dollars a day. And the, you could actually argue they're quite cheap for what they do for patients. Yep, absolutely. You know, and I think you're, you know, what you described there, I think, you know, illustrates, I think, to, to a couple of points. One is, is that it just, you know, you think of, you should really be thinking about this as a, as a, as a course of therapy. Now, the course of therapy can be, you know, three days um, until you actually know what you're dealing with. But getting away so that we're not slicing things in terms of how, um, you know, how many days or how many doses or skinning up the dose to try to, to use less vials and so forth, but really start to reform costs uh, based on a, a course of therapy or some other metric that, that helps us um, to be able to, uh, um, you know, to, to capture that um, piece as well. So I think in, you you raise a really good point uh, in terms of how to think about where how to use these drugs and where they need to be used, and particularly in a in a very sick patients and how how to think about those. But I think the 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 issue right now is is that how do we dissociate or as others have mentioned delink the idea about the value that the antibiotic uh, brings to the bedside brings to an individual patient versus how it becomes reimbursed. And if historically, as we all know, um, antibiotics were used in lots of patients in the inpatient and outpatient setting. They were used in lots of patients who wouldn't benefit by those antibiotics. But that large, if you will, volume means in which we were using antibiotics um, in many patients who need them, but many patients who didn't need them provided kind of the basis, kind of a volume-based model, if you will, economically about how these drugs were going to be um, paid for and how one could then support then being able to bring these molecules to market and then also continue the innovation cycle that we have to, to bring new molecules forward. And lots of companies, all bigger companies were pretty successful in that. I think 
now fast forwarding today, we all know that many patients who had maybe historically received antibiotics didn't need them or didn't need them for as long of a course of therapy. Right. It still and, doesn't change. Yeah, go it, ahead. Sorry. It's just, oh no, I'm so sorry to cut you off. I was kind of just thinking out loud here. It's just a different world, right? Like, like we're never going to develop another ceftriaxone, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's not going to be that time where it's the drug that is good for everything, for every patient. It's kind of a one size fits all. It's still such a workhorse in our therapy um, because, I mean, fortunately we have amazing stewardship programs and people who are working very hard to protect antibiotics and only use them when they're needed as we should. And so our penicillin is still a fantastic antibiotic when it works. And so we have a lot of antibiotics that are still effective when needed. And then the new an antibiotics that we need for the resistant infections that we can't treat, those hopefully are such few and far between, right? We don't want our patients mm -hmm. getting these horrible resistant infections. And so um, they're almost orphan drugs, right? They're, they should be such rare conditions. And so, you know, how do we think about antibiotics in that way and, and work to change the market so that antibiotics are reimbursed in such a way kind of in line with orphan drugs or things like that? Because we're not going to have another vancomycin or daptomycin or, or ceftriaxone. That's just not likely going to happen. That's right. And, you know, people outside of the, uh, of the infectious disease field, uh, people who are in the cancer, people in the transplant areas, they look at, at, at the antibiotics field and they say, I don't understand why you guys don't have antibiotics that are $50,000 per course of therapy, because the value that they look at their products in their own world and their own therapeutic areas easily meet those metrics. And that's the, the issue where in the past we were able to, the companies or clinicians were using antibiotics in lots of patients. It's the, old, it's the old idea that if you have lots of volume, you can have lower prices. So we got used to seeing drugs um, very cheap, uh, you know, whether they were in community pharmacies or whether they were in the inpatient setting. Now, we, the antibiotics didn't be become less valuable uh, in terms of what they're able to do in patient care and being able to en enable all the things that we're able to do in medicine now from chemotherapy to surgery to transplants and the like, they don't, they aren't less valuable because we shorten their course of therapy. We're just using it in a smaller number of patients. They're in fact more valuable on a per course basis. So I think we just have to recalibrate our, our thinking in terms of that, yes, these drugs, when given to the right patient, are highly valuable, and they, um, they meet all the metrics that you might have in terms of value-based therapies that we have in other, in other areas. Yeah. The problem is we can't put that on the back of hospitals, right, in the present system. We can't put that on the back of, uh, of patients and on uh, and and on those care settings. Uh, and that's why we have to make some reforms on how antibiotics are paid for. Yes, you are, you're correct. And I, as, a, you know, as a pharmacist working in a hospital right now, or really anyone in the infectious diseases space, we all want to take the best care of our patients and we, we want to use these new antibiotics. But the truth of the matter in our healthcare system right now is that we have to have these honest discussions about where these antibiotics fit and the cost. And so a good example, a couple years ago, a drug came to market in bone marrow transplant for prevention of cytomegalovirus or CMV, which anyone who's followed this podcast knows that that is one of my favorite infections. So I will shamelessly talk about it. <laughs> I think CMV is fascinating. And so it's, it's a 
it's the troll of transplant. Like it's a very complicated infection. It has, you know, awful morbidity, mortality for patients. It's one of those infections where like, we need drugs. Okay, cool. So a company developed a drug. Thank you. Yay. And then we got this drug and the uptake on it was rather slow. I think in 2020, we're finally starting to see it more routinely in the patients who need it. Again, only using them in patients who need it, where the data is that show the mortality benefits, show the significant benefits. But when the drug first came out and I reviewed the data with several physicians and good colleagues and had great discussions about its role in therapy and how we would ensure patients had access to the drug and insurance coverage after discharge and all of these things and coming up with clinical pathways because we want to use these drugs in the patients who deserve them. And there was serious discussion and consideration of, you know, a bone marrow transplant is under a bundle DRG and they were already under the gun about reimbursement and ensuring that everything, can you imagine every single lab test value bed? I mean, they're in the hospital for two, three weeks at a minimum. Um, everything that goes into a bone marrow transplant, this incredible scientific life-saving advancement um, is one bundled payment. And so they were like, we're going to add, you know, X number of dollars per day for this new drug that is, yes, very appealing, but we need to consider that. We can't just do it, can't just throw it on there. If the hospital starts losing money on every single transplant we perform, what are we going to do? Then we can't do transplants. Then we have to shut our door as a transplant center. Like the hospital, we have to make money in order to save patients, which is kind of this just like continuous for us as clinicians, you know, just it's something we have to deal with. It's life, but we, we need to make it better. And so luckily, this is not a gloom and doom podcast. We are not pessimists here. So there are some solutions in the works to try to make it better. And one of those things is the Disarm Act. So Mike, do you want to talk to our audience about the Disarm Act, what it is, how they can help um, and ways they can support their government into to implementing this act and even the thought behind it? Yes. Uh, so the Disarm Act is, um, is really centered around the idea that we have to start moving towards um, being making these new drugs, new technologies available um, to um, patients and clinicians and hospitals um, at, without them having to pay for these innovations um, within the capitated or DRG system. And it really started, um, the, uh, these types of considerations started back when newer um, devices were being introduced in the hospitals and hospitals were slow to adopt devices because there was no means of being able to pay for them. So that the, uh, so for example, robotic surgery uh, is, is an example using the Da Vinci types of uh, machines and so forth in the OR, where um, hospitals, in order to adopt this new technology, had to find ways of being able to pay for that. So the Center for Medicare Services, or CMS, um, had what is known as a new technology add-on payment system, which would reimburse hospitals for adoption of those uh, that technology. Um, that was further extended to um, antibiotics first with fidoxamycin, and then more recently, the first um, IV antibiotics to actually receive those were, were Vebamir, uh, and then uh, ultimately Zemdri or, or plazomycin as well. So it's a way of, of helping hospitals to try to adopt these technologies sooner, uh, because data have been shown, particularly for antibiotics, that is oftentimes can take over a year um, after availability before these drugs are actually available and used uh, within the hospital. And I think in, that's in at least in part um, due to um, issues surrounding their uh, reimbursement. Quick note on NTAP, because that program is awesome, and it's a very good step in the right direction. But just for 
you know, kind of transparency and clarity of all that. And I know there's always two sides to every story and there's so many stakeholders in every decision we make. Um, but uh, from my perspective as a stewardship pharmacist and actually um, Jason Polk, who's the current president of SIDP has kind of been leading an effort to gather information. We've been working for the past few months because we're really interested in this because we want this, you know, this resource exists, this reimbursement is, exists. It was a great step in the right direction. So how do we empower stewardship pharmacists to know about it? to talk to their stakeholders at their hospitals about these antibiotics that qualify for NTOP and ensure that we're using it and getting reimbursed and, and getting, you know, taking some of this cost consideration out of the picture of using the best drug for the patient. Well, come to find out, and we still have a lot to learn, but the NTOP system, at least on the user end, is a little complicated in that we it essentially goes to billing and billing people link it to different codes. And when the patient's discharged and they're going back through, um, they, they look for administration of the antibiotic and these certain billing codes. And then that gets submitted to CMS. And if it's an NTAP drug, then that reimbursement does come back to the hospital under that DRG and that admission. But the pharmacy department doesn't actually see that reward or see that reimbursement. So from the pharmacy department end, it still looks like you spent, let's say, $100,000 on Ceftaz and maybe back to him for that patient or whatnot. Um, and so when you're a stewardship pharmacist and you know, metrics are on drug dollars or a pharmacy department and, and your budget cycle is on drug dollars, there's still somewhat of a disconnect there and still room we need to improve in these regulations and, and in making sure that everyone is working as a team um, to really comprehensively take care of the patient. I think oftentimes in healthcare, we're a little siloed and budgets from each department come from different avenues. And so it's hard to be like, well, I spent... 30,000 more dollars, but they discharged three days earlier and they didn't get readmitted and we didn't spend all this other money. Sometimes it, it takes a while to, to link that all together. And so we're still having to advocate for different kind of cost metrics. Oh, that's right. And, and that's really been a, a frustration, I think, um, quite frankly, on, on both sides. I think CMS is really trying to address this uh, issue and make these technologies available. And I think they recognize that, that it's very, very difficult to make use of these additional payments. And that's really the genesis of, of, of what DISARM tries to do is to actually remove um, antibiotics from the DRGs such that the, uh, the, the cost for the antibiotic, therefore, isn't um, capped by the DRG payment. And if you have an appropriate stewardship program that's identifying an appropriate patient uh, to receive this, then that use of that antibiotic would be uh, uh, reimbursed separately under a different mechanism that would um, allow then uh, not having to go through the administrative hurdles that you do, uh, as you described, with the NTAP coding system. And, and that's, a, you know, that's an important um, uh, approach. Um, it's been precedented before. Um, years ago, when many of the non-opiate analgesic drugs were being introduced for hospital use, uh, hospitals were also disincentivized to adopt those therapies, and they continue to use uh, opiate analgesic drugs for pain management within the hospital um, because they're cheaper um, than these newer drugs that had uh, been introduced into the marketplace. And we all know where that ended up. 
um, in terms of using opiates preferentially compared to non-opiate agents. And it was only until um, Congress acted to actually carve out um, opiate analgesic drugs from the DRG, so hospitals were not disincentivized by using those, um, that we were able to, to get more widespread use of those drugs, which I think, you know, arguably would be to everyone's benefit, particularly the patient's benefit. Yeah, exactly. So disarm sounds promising. We'd encourage our listeners to uh, to talk to your congressman about the Disarm Act. You can search online and find different ways to co-sponsor or send, um, you know, letters of support for this important act for starting to change the reimbursement model and starting to help us use the right drugs for the right patient at the right time. Disarm isn't the only initiative going on, though. I think there's a few other solutions that have been proposed to the antibiotic marketplace. And Mike, can you, do you mind discussing a few of those other things that are going on that you have great insight on for our audience? Yes, and, and I think the um, uh, many of these um, approaches now fall into a, a broader classification about, again, how do we um, put in place um, some means of being able to um, support, if you will, a, a business, which a business has the responsibility of not only making the antibiotics available, doing the necessary clinical trials, the manufacturing, and so forth, but also so continue innovation. That's what um, that's what we were able to do decades ago in terms of of having successful. Um, uh, reimbursement or payment for antibiotics, uh, and, and we're able to support innovation. We need to get back to that. So there's a couple of ideas that have been um, um, brought forward. Many of them fall into what are called pull incentives. There are push incentives, which I, uh, I, and I always used to get these confused. A push incentive is something that lowers the barrier for entry. So efforts like BARDA, grants uh, that are, are provided by NIH or others, those those are push incentives that lower the barrier for one to get involved in doing antibiotic drug discovery and development. A pull incentive is, is what happens once you're successful in doing that, and how do you then get reimbursed, or how do you make it attractive then to uh, continue to be within um, the business of uh, drug discovery, development, and commercialization. So some of the um, uh, ideas that, um, that certainly that we, one of the things that we talked about in terms of pull incentive was, of course, with new technology add-on payments, but some of the other so-called pull incentives, um, and one that is particularly uh, uh, generated some interest, have been uh, models known as a subscription model. And, and, and I'll explain it like this, but the notion is, is that what you want to be doing is to be paying for access um, to uh, an antimicrobial or ensuring that it's accessible for use in an individual patient. And it gets us away from thinking about antibiotics on a per dose or on a per day basis in terms of how we uh, think about how much they cost. I mean, everybody thinks about, oh, how much is that per dose or how much is that per dial? How much for that is that per day? And that we really think about it, an antibiotic course is valuable if you give it and you use the example of empiric therapy, the most valuable part of that antibiotics um, course might be the first 48 hours of therapy. The value of, those, of that, that uh, therapy is incredibly important, perhaps not as valuable as when you're getting it on day 14 through 16, where arguably you may not need it anymore. So the value of the antibiotic in terms of what it's doing, which is uh, saving a patient's life, enabling some medical 
medical procedure uh, enabling uh, one to receive cancer chemotherapy um, is payment on the value of it or for access for it. And so this idea of a subscription model, sometimes referred to as a Netflix model because of the idea that you pay for access, uh, not by the number of, uh, of movies um, that you watch, but you pay for access for uh, a flat fee on uh, over some period of time for access to some fixed number of units of drugs uh, as needed. And we've used right. these types of, of, of population-based models in a variety of different ways. Um, you know, one example has been in hepatitis, as you probably know about, um, right. where um, uh, Gilead, for one, uh, made uh, available to certain uh, states uh, a subscription for access uh, to hepatitis E agents for treatment of uh, Medicaid patients uh, in that state to cure their hepatitis because that's right. extremely valuable. Uh, hepatitis is actually an, a great example because it's something we're discussing right now at my center and I know this is going to have probably been discussed at other major transplant centers and will be discussed um, moving forward. It's not even just you know new antibiotics coming to market. It's antibiotics or antivirals or antimicrobials that are on the market have been amazingly successful because they save lives. And so hepatitis C, that has to be one of the most amazing things to witness since, since ART therapy, right? Um, with, yep. with AIDS patients, how I mean, people used to die and now they live and it's unbelievable. And um, so direct acting antivirals for hep C, unbelievable. And now we can transplant in hep C negative recipients, hep C positive donor organs. Wow. And that is like mind blowing, amazing science that's going to save a lot of lives. But the conversation we're having is these patients will still be inpatient when they, um, you know, after transplant, obviously. And so when do they start their direct acting antiviral if they need to start it and we're coming up with protocols and, but those drugs are quite expensive when they're given inpatient. And so, Obviously, we don't want to say no to organs when we know there's science now to prove that this is safe and effective, but, you know, someone has to pay for those drugs. And so this conversation isn't unique to just new drugs coming to the market. Oh, that's right. That, that's right. And I think that's, that's part of the, the discussion that, frankly, we need to be doing better uh, in, the, um, in the antibiotic, antimicrobial space, is being able to link how the use of the antibiotic is able to impact on, on diseases or procedures that we've already decided uh, to do. So being able to, I, I frequently refer to some of the cases that um, have been published in liver transplants on use of, of, of newer antibiotics in patients who have developed um, CRE infections following liver transplant and the ability to, to be able to impact on those patients in, in terms of being able to cure their infection. So that becomes a, you know, so it becomes a, a, an important part of how we think about the value of antibiotics uh, being uh, in place to allow these things to take to uh, these types of procedures um, to take place. The UK government, uh, and I recently learned also um, Sweden, are similarly looking at um, these um, types of programs, which, which in particular the UK program will really consider very broadly on the value 
uh, in medicine that antibiotics are bringing uh, to that. So, so what is the cost of not being able to do a liver transplant and having the uh, you know and having um, patients uh, not uh, not to, to be able to undergo those uh, those uh, procedures um, because of the uh, the lack of availability of effective antibiotics. So looking at societal value of um, antibiotics is going to be an important part of the UK uh, assessment uh, and their program that they'll be kicking off uh, later this year. Um, but we've also had um, looks in the United States of, of actually what is the value of, how, of a new antibiotic or antibiotics in general that are active across, um, across a, the healthcare system in the U.S.? There was a recent editorial, Helen Boucher is the lead author on this. It was published in CID a couple of weeks ago. Um, Kevin Outerson is the senior author. He is the leader of Carbex, which we've discussed. And in this editorial, they cite a paper from a few years ago where essentially this, this group looked and they said, you know, if we estimate that to develop the new antibiotics that we need to treat infections or indications that we don't have active therapies for right now. We, society would spend 4.5 billion developing these molecules or these agents. They said that that $4.5 billion investment in these antibiotics or antimicrobials would yield a $29 billion societal value through the development of those new antibiotics, which they said is a 644% return on investment to the United States alone for these agents, which is pretty good when you put it in that context. And I don't think we can even begin to quantify the economic harm that comes from when you have pockets of society that are hit by infections we can't treat. And I actually think a great example of that is what we're seeing right now with coronavirus. We are, which obviously is kind of a different subsect than multidrug resistant pseudomonas or whatnot, but I don't, think we realized quite yet, and it's going to be significant, the economic overall burden of these infections that we, we can't treat. I couldn't agree more. And I think that, that what will be important about updating these estimates, and particularly the program in the UK is being done by an organization called NICE, which has done these healthcare assessments of technology. And I think they're really going to strive to capture all the value of, of antibiotics on a societal basis that will serve as a as a, a basis for how these should be reimbursed again valuing the importance of what's enabled in the healthcare system as well as how it impacts an individual patient yeah and speaking of antibiotics with value um, I think we would all agree that an antibiotic that has little little value these days is colistin um, an a polymyxin antibiotic incredibly toxic but Mike I almost made it through this entire podcast and I didn't tell our audience that you are in fact developing another polymyxin, which some would just be shocked to hear. Um, but it's not, you know, I mean, colistin is horrible because it's not efficacious and it's incredibly toxic. It's not that the mechanism of the drug is bad. It's very effective to kill gram-negative bacteria in vitro, right? Just the pharmacokinetics in our patients is atrocious and we had other things we need to consider. So um, let's flip back a bit to the development side because it's so fascinating and talk to me about like why a polymyxin you know what got you guys down that path and what you're doing with that with that antibiotic and everything we've discussed today 
Yes, and so as you know, as we looked at our portfolio as we were developing, we had the beta lactamase inhibitor programs, and which was going to have both an oral as well as an IV product that would cover a spectrum of patients that would be uh, not sick enough, perhaps, to be in the hospital, or it could be stepped down uh, to oral therapy uh, in the proper uh, setting. For example. Uh, following gram-negative bacteremia, but we still continue to look and say that there were patients on the very, very far spectrum, if you will, on the right, that are, are the sickest patients within the hospital that are requiring oftentimes um, combination drugs and have multiple mechanisms of resistance and where we're going to want to use those. And, and uh, you're right, I mean, polymyxin uh, antibiotics have been um, useful from uh, in those settings where you really have limited or no choices at all. Uh, we're all very familiar with the problems and limitations of the uh, uh, polymyxin antibiotics. And we looked at it um, some years ago, actually in collaboration with uh, Jian Li and Roger Nation, the, the group at Monash University. In I've heard of those guys. Yes. And yeah, they're, they're uh, you know, world experts on polymyxin pharmacology. And we uh, worked with, uh, with Jian and Roger as part of an NIH-funded um, uh, drug discovery um, collaboration where they did the discovery work um, using their chemists and uh, pharmacologists to, um, to do the work on, on making new synthetic uh, polymyxins as opposed to the mixtures that colistin and polymyxin B, which are actually mixtures of natural products of, of different components, which all have different antimicrobial activity and different toxicities. Here's a pure synthetic polymyxin, which is uh, made using modern po uh, peptide synthesis techniques. And we work with Roger and Gian, and, and we focus the spectrum to really be uh, directed against Acinetobacter and Pseudomonas. And what in, in drug discovery, it's the old song, you know, you can't always get what you want. You oftentimes can't get everything you want into a class of molecules. So we did for the beta-lactamase inhibitor, but in Polymyxins, you can either optimize them to be um, really, really good against Acinetobacter and Pseudomonas, or maybe really, really good against Enterobacteriaceae, and not so good uh, against the non-fermenters. And we chose to to go with optimizing against the non-fermenters because, um, for the reasons that you know, that the uh, Enterobacteriaceae are certainly becoming better addressed uh, by non-polymyxin antimicrobials. So we focused our our, uh, our medicinal chemistry program to really optimize against Pseudomonas and Acinetobacter in terms of potency, and we succeeded in developing in, in, in finding a molecule that is more potent than polymyxin B and colistin against Acinetobacter and Pseudomonas. But most importantly, we wanted to uh, make sure that we address the toxicities, and so uh, major toxicity, of course, being nephrotoxicity. So the goal of the program was to reduce the toxicity in preclinical um, animals with respect to uh, acute toxicity as well as nephrotoxicity uh, with the agent and by again making uh, uh, many many compounds and testing them in a variety of in vitro as well as in vivo assay uh, we were able to discover a compound that uh, a synthetic polymyxin uh, we call QPX 9003 in collaboration with Jian's uh, uh, team and that really is kind of a model collaboration of how I think uh, BARDA and NIH think about drug discovery, where NIH, in this case, funded the drug discovery program uh, that we had with Monash University. And then when we were successful in, uh, in demonstrating that this was a developed 
palpable molecule, it graduated, if you will, into our BARDA portfolio program. And so now it's part of that um, other transactional authority agreement that we have with BARDA, and it'll be moving to the clinic later this year. That's so interesting. And so what I'm hearing is overwhelmingly that there's dedicated people all over the world. The science is good. The pipeline in ideas and development for new molecules and new targets is strong. Um, I, if our audience isn't aware, uh, the World Health Organization actually archives the preclinical pipeline now. And I don't know if it's completely up to date, but as of the last check, if you go to you know the WHO's website and look for the antibacterial preclinical pipeline review, last updated November 2019. And at that point in time, they at least captured 252 antibacterial products in development in, development in 145 institutions around the world. Um, and so it's, it's great. That is still going strong. And I think we've addressed, you know, the other end once, if these products make it to market and we want to use them for our patients, some, some ideas and some thoughts we've thrown out about the market reform aspect. Mike, is there anything else you want to say to that piece or really just in general to our audience to kind of wrap up our discussion today? So yes, Aaron, the, the WHO report on both the clinical as well as the preclinical antibiotic um, pipeline that was um, released last uh, late last year in 2000, December 2019, I think was was really helpful. The the preclinical antibiotic um, pipeline they actually have a very nice interactive database online where you can literally look up um, all of the uh, products that are in development. You can download a spreadsheet um, if. Uh, if you want to actually um, look at uh, both the companies, the programs, and what they're addressing um, uh, with that. So that's an, it, it's an important tool and an important analysis. I think one which was- I Pharmacists love was, spreadsheets. We love spreadsheets. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great spreadsheet. And I, I, per um, the, I perked uh, up at organized list. I was like, oh, <laughs> nice. Okay. Well, don't, don't, don't click past the interactive part. The interactive part is actually very, very useful to, to kind of hover over things and open up little uh, windows. But the, I think there were two aspects of the, the WHA report, which were, were to me very helpful. One was, is that they found the clinical pipeline was really insufficient to um, to address um, kind of what's here and what's coming, and I think that gets back to this idea that you know in the United States we are one, if you will, plane ride, one plasmid, one transposon away from wiping out all the gains that we've had in uh, gram-negative resistance, carbapenem resistance that we've been able to uh, muster uh, over the last five to ten years. And so one plasmid, uh, one transposon uh, with an NDM or a VIM or a combination as such, which have already been reported uh, in Europe, is enough to wipe out the Kazavi Vavermeer um, advances that we've had. So we've got to keep um, going, and that's why we keep going on this. The second piece on the preclinical antibiotic development piece, um, which I think is, is really helpful, is that you know, there is a shift towards more pathogen-specific agents. And I think this then begets sort of a larger discussion about how do you develop pathogen-specific agents. It's really hard um, to do that. You need rapid diagnostics um, to probably do that um, because you're going to need to really be pretty sure or pretty sure that you have a high high pretest probability that you're dealing um, with that pathogen in, in order to use that. I think the other thing, um, and, and that's important because, you know, we talk about um, so-called personalized medicine here or individualized medicine uh, is this, 
but the problem is, is that on a global basis, that the more technology that you need to, uh, to make a decision about using an antibiotic, the more that you're sort of pushing a lot of areas of the world where we know that we have antibiotic resistance problems that need new drugs. So it's a careful balance. And I think the, the WHO report does a nice job of pointing that out. Is, is that that we have to think about this, um, from, yes, from the standpoint of, of making better drugs and really cool technology, but we have to balance that with the applicability uh, to global AMR. And we can't just be thinking about um, areas that are going to have a laboratory stuffed with the latest um, boxes that are able to do all the characterization uh, of, uh, of resistance mechanisms. Yeah, that's an incredible point. Um, as we considered you know, the impact of this on patients all over. And as we've learned, you know, technologies don't work without stewardship influence and the marrying of the ability to act on these things and then help patients in real time. And so um, kind of goes to that whole picture that we were talking about earlier that we can't just think about these in silos, but really as kind of a global effort of moving these drugs forward and, and getting them to our patients. That's right. And, and you know, I can't, I can't let a conversation about kind of the preclinical pipeline go without a, really a, a discussion of what are now being characterized as non-traditional agents. I, I don't like that term. I wish I could think of a better term, but a non-traditional agent is something, I think, uh, other than a small molecule um, antibiotic that's used for treating infections. So think antibodies, um, think of, of, of things that are going to augment, augment innate immunity, um, think phages. And I think one of the things that we have to be very careful about investing in this area is to make sure that these are scalable types of technology. They may be really, really cool, but it's a little analogous to like bone marrow transplants for um, HIV. You know, yes, you can use bone marrow transplants to cure HIV. I think that's uh, been, been shown very nicely, but that's not a scalable way to approach the problem. And I think we have to think very carefully about um, some of the ideas that are being uh, thought about right now that um, is that really something that's going to be scalable, not only in some um, uh, maybe third world or uh, economically depressed area, but is it even going to be scalable to something that we're going to want to be using in our, in our own um, health healthcare institutions in the U.S.? So I think we have to be uh, pretty hard-nosed about a lot of these technologies. Um, boy, um, if you think small molecule antibiotics are expensive, um, way do you see some of these other things um, as well. So I think that's, that's something that in, when we are thinking about programs, and we've looked at a lot of these technologies as, as part of CUPEX, um, we really oftentimes wonder whether these are really going to be scalable um, and practical in that setting. So I always say, you know, think about the target profile, think about how that's going to be useful in the clinical setting uh, versus something that's just really cool. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, there's a researcher at the University of Pittsburgh. Her name's Daria Van Tyne. She's phenomenal, runs just an incredible lab. And she builds phage libraries. And she gave mm -hmm. a grand rounds, actually, that I attended. And I never thought about it like this because I currently think of phages as an ultra last resort of, you know, I, I literally have nothing else and let's try phage therapy. And there's obviously a lot of paperwork right now currently that goes with giving a patient phage therapy and, and experimental IDA and all these other things. Um, but Daria was like, 
send me your isolates, send me your patient isolates. We can start screening and searching and building and finding the phages. And then when you have a patient, we can match it more readily and more quickly. You don't have to wait till your patient's three weeks into inactive therapy and has no other option to send us the isolate to try to find it. There are researchers all over the world who are building phage libraries and certain, I realized that they actually specialize in different pathogens. And so um, you know, someone might have a whole library for Pseudomonas and Acinetobacter, vice versa. Um, I learned that Burkholderia is a pathogen we desperately need antibiotics and other therapies for. I, apparently, it's quite hard to find lytic phages against Burkholderia. So there's so much that goes into all of this. And like you said, that is such an, a good point of thinking about how we can make these therapies not just this cool thing, but readily applicable to patient care. So... All right, Mike. Well, as we're wrapping up here, thank you so much for joining me today. I think we've had a lot of really rich discussion that's hopefully very valuable to our listeners. I know I've learned a ton from you. Um, before we sign off, is there anything else you want to say? No, I'd just like to thank you, um, Aaron, for the opportunity um, to, to chat with you about this and address SIDP and the other listeners there. Um, I'll add that you may not know that, that I was actually one of the founders of SIDP in that dawning age of stewardship that we talked about in the 1990s. And I just wanted to say what you and others in the leadership of SIDP have accomplished uh, is way beyond what we ever thought was possible. So congratulations on the podcast and thanks to you and the leadership that's advanced SIDP to the status that it has today. Thank you so much. But I mean, I must say it honestly just, it takes a village and it's really just a, like I kind of said in the beginning, an amazing group of people that are really passionate about all these very important things for taking care of our patients. So it's, it's really, we have a lot of fun doing it and hopefully this has been helpful for everyone. And, and thank you for, I mean, I wouldn't be anywhere without all the people who've taught me all these things. So thank you for doing what you do and uh, improving the care of our patients. Thank you. I think we're done now. This is sad. Huh. But with that, <laughs> I'm like, wait, what are we going to keep talking about? Um, but with that, uh, thank you so much, Mike. Uh, thank you to our audience. You are listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist podcast. 